You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, is, this is The Hour. The hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, the producer of the show, here to guide you through. Right now, you're listening to the second part of this special episode of The Hour on the changing economics of electronic music. Journalist, DJ and music producer Angus Finlayson is back to dive deeper into this complex subject. Here's Angus with part two. Hello and welcome to the second part of this special episode of The Hour on the changing economics of electronic music. My name's Angus Finlayson, and I'm a long-term contributor to Resident Advisor, as well as a producer under the name Minor Science. In this two-part episode, I've been looking at how the financial situation for underground producers is changing. Traditional income streams seem to be drying up by the year, and many producers claim that it's getting more difficult for them to earn a decent income from the music they make. In last month's instalment, we looked at the ways artists can sell their music to fans. We heard how technology has changed the game in the past decade, explored the risks and frustrations of working with major streaming services, and looked at some alternatives to Spotify and Co. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to check out that episode before listening to part two. This time around, we'll be looking at other possible income streams for producers with the help of musicians, including Patrice Boimel, Gunnar Haslam, and Telefon Tel Aviv, as well as journalists and experts with a deep knowledge of the topic. Later in the episode, we'll explore a growing and somewhat controversial income source, brand sponsorship. But before that, I'll be examining the ways that producers can earn money in the live sphere. First up, we're back with the artist and thinker, Matt Dryhurst to discuss the often misunderstood realm of performance royalties. Let's talk about another potential income stream for a musician, which is performance royalties. So in theory, if my track gets played in a club by a DJ, the collection agency in that country will notice that that's happened. And I'm a member of this agency and they will pay me um, a proportion of their income for the year that reflects that. In what ways is this system as it stands imperfect or unfair it's really tricky right um the main challenge is you have yeah collection societies who again kind of like the spotify universe have the this kind of very uh kind of ambitious goal or mandate to regulate all music and make sure that everyone gets paid well which i think is it just doesn't work i'm sure if you go speak to someone at game or ascap there are bright people who are trying their very best to make it work but there's just too much information there so yes hypothetically uh you or i go dj in a club and we play this record and then that person's registered then they get fairly compensated uh it doesn't work like that um what ends up happening is paul mccartney or someone ends up getting that money it doesn't it doesn't work pretty well there's an organization called bmat in barcelona who who i think are doing a great job in the sense that they want to register more works and kind of 
be another intermediary there to help at least identify the works and uh, and and, and make they it offer better. A, a technology, right? The, um, exactly, it's like a hardware identify. box that you can place in the clubs. Um, similarly, you know, YouTube is 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 trying this with fingerprinting. Is they're all using like fingerprinting technologies. I noticed that so Richie Horton and Pioneer started an initiative many years ago called Get Played, Get Paid. I don't know what the status of that is. It's a very noble initiative, particularly coming from someone who uh, presumably makes a very healthy living from playing other people's music. The the fact that he would come forward and try and f uh, be the figurehead of that, I think is very noble on his part. What concerns me there is that the project doesn't appear to have gained very much traction. Now, I might be wrong about that. I don't want to be crucified. But what that tells me is less that their intentions were compromised and more that, like with streaming, retrofitting a bad infrastructure to try and become a good infrastructure is maybe a whole bunch harder <laughs> than creating a good infrastructure from scratch. More power to anybody who's trying to do that, but in my particular instance, I'm, I'm more concentrating in the short term of, of thinking about building an entirely parallel different system that can somehow legally, <laughs> legally not be crushed by the fact that these a lot of the collection agencies are state are state protected um i'm more interested in that question um than than retrofitting a system that isn't currently working but i think we might agree that our inability as a community to compensate people for their earnest labor needs to be resolved that's a it's a it's a it's an embarrassment that that doesn't happen Matt's cynicism about the royalty collection system is something that I and many musicians share. There are some ways to earn okay money through the performing rights organisations. That is, for example, PRS in the UK or GEMA in Germany. Peak time plays on a national radio station, for instance, can lead to decent payouts. But plays of your track in clubs and at festivals rarely translate into much income. Many electronic musicians are so disillusioned about the system that they don't even bother to sign up to their local PRO. But maybe change is on the horizon. The Get Played, Get Paid campaign, which Matt refers to, was launched in 2014 by the Association for Electronic Music, with Richie Horton as its figurehead. Matt's right that after an initial burst of publicity, the campaign hasn't exactly been high profile. But in a sense, it's had, and continues to have, success. Its primary goal is to change the way that performance data about electronic music is collected. From an old, imperfect model, which puts most of the money in Paul McCartney's pocket, to a more precise method using new music recognition technology. To find out more, I spoke to Liz Muirhead from BMAT, one of several companies promoting this new technology. Liz is also involved with the Association for Electronic Music, the organisation behind Get Paid, Get Played. My name is Liz Muirhead. I'm Vice President of Venues Music Monitoring at BMAT. Uh, I'm also on the Executive Board and the Advisory Board of the Association for Electronic Music, and I'm also the Chairman of the Metadata Working Group of the Association for Electronic Music. So in theory, if, say, my track is played um, by a DJ at a club, I get paid for it. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that mechanism has traditionally worked? 
So you're exactly right. If your track is played in a club, then you should get paid for it because what should happen is that the club is paying a license fee to play the music to the performing rights organisations, plural, in that territory because you have the author's rights and also the phonogram rights. Now that you have those organisations with those license fees, exactly what you've said, they should be paying them out to the musicians whose music has actually been played in the club. What is happening is that we're trying to get to that place because actually the systems in place right now are in a process of evolution. What traditionally has happened is that to monitor the music in those venues, um, it could be one of a number of different things or a combination of them. They could be using data that's on the radio, they could be sending agents that will visit a certain number of clubs in a territory to monitor the music that's played within say an hour, two hours, three hours. But essentially what's not happening is that they don't know all the music that is played in a club all the time and that's the current uh, status right now for the majority that is changing in some areas. These agents you're referring to these are essentially people with clipboards who some people who go to clubs may have encountered this who might ask the DJ what they'd played in the last hour and then kind of write down the track lists yeah. and I gather it's also possible um, or it certainly seems to be in the UK for, for the DJ to voluntarily um, declare their set list as well, is that right? Exactly, and it could also be having the DJs themselves deliver those set lists. So that could be giving them to the, to the promoter or the people managing the venue itself. Or in some cases you'll have PROs that via their website, you can already do it digitally. That's quite common in a lot of territories where you can actually upload your set list direct. But again, it's not across the board. It's the ones that are more innovative. They're representing large catalogues of music. So they have the budget to, to work on the digital services. So yeah, there's various different ways they can get the data, but yeah, it's still not complete. Yeah, and this, and this kind of uh, incompleteness of the data that they can collect, this incomplete picture that they have of what tracks exactly are being played in clubs. Mm -hmm. um, how does that affect the payout that I might get or that electronic musicians in general might get from a performing rights organisation? Well, this is it. If your track hasn't been picked up in whatever processes are being carried out and conducted by a PRO in that territory, if your music hasn't been picked up, there's no way for that identification of a track to then match with their internal database and then for that to be passed through the system for then to receive a payment. So for all of the tracks that go unidentified, no money can go in that direction. So then you have the data that is available and the money will either go to them or there's, depending on the territories, there are these black boxes where the money is stored until people claim for it. Um, but essentially the important part here is that where music is not identified, it's missing out on royalties that are legally due to those musicians. As Liz mentioned, in some territories, and the UK is one of them, DJs can do their bit to rectify the problem by voluntarily reporting their set lists. As we were finalising this podcast, the British duo Posthuman took to Twitter to explain the potential benefits of this. It's very easy to report through the PRS site, and you can report a set list up to a year after the gig took place. For festival gigs in particular, this could make a difference. UK festivals pay around 2.5% of their box office takings to PRS, and this money is supposed to go directly to musicians whose tracks were played at that festival, meaning a play of your track on the main stage could lead to a substantial payout. 
There are limitations to self-reporting setlists, however. The big money is only there for festivals and large events like the Warehouse Project. The potential revenue from clubs is negligible, though declaring a club set does help PRS in guessing what was played at festivals. More problematically, to submit a setlist, you need to be a PRS member. And to be a member, you need to have a catalogue of works registered with PRS. So in other words, only DJs who make their own music can submit playlists, which rules out a fair few of the top festival DJs. Back to Liz, with an explanation of how music recognition technologies might improve the situation. So could you explain in, in more detail exactly what the technology is that, um, that BMAT offers? Sure. There are various different ways that we can monitor venues because we're not just for us. It's not just about electronic music. We also are doing live and, and actually all different types of genres. Um, but essentially how it would work is that we have a small box that's literally like a quarter of the size of your laptop and like probably almost as thin. Uh, that'll be plugged into the mixer and it will also, also be plugged into electricity. And that's actually it. We provide our own internet that would actually be required to monitor the music. We're basically recording all that music, which is then sent to our servers in Barcelona. And all that um, audio is being then matched against a database, um, a database of music. In total, we have 72 million tracks. So all that music has already been integrated. And actually, that's increasing every day in fact we're receiving updates we're connected to over 120,000 labels including the majors including indies sometimes it's being connected to digital distributors so we have that sat there and then we have the audio coming in and for every track that we identify it then appears in a platform and every platform will be different for each PRO because they'll want to know a specific number of venues or I mean from our perspective it could be a specific number of radios and TVs and venues it'll be a combination of whatever they've actually contracted us for um, and they'll see every track lined up in their platform so that would be the name of the artist the name of the track the label ISRC ISWC all these like music industry identifiers all the data that is possible to give to the PROs so they can match it with their internal databases and then pay it out um, and there's various different ways you can use the dashboard and the platform itself. You can analyze the data in many different ways. We can deliver the data via an Excel file as well if they prefer or through an appy. We're very agile, we're an innovative company. So although we have the platform, we really kind of tailor our services to what each PRO desires, which can vary from one to the other. So the Association for Electronic Music with which you're involved, um, when they started campaigning for this technology a few years ago, estimated that we're talking about a figure of $160 million that was due to the electronic music industry, but was going elsewhere because of this incomplete data collection by the by the PROs. Um, that seems like a, a massive sum of money. Yeah, and I, it's spot on. And that's the thing, it's that sum of money and all the money that continues to be paid out to the wrong artists is exactly why we need to do this. And that statement and that voice of the Association for Electronic Music is the type of pressure that needs to take place and bringing it to the attention of the people and even like this podcast for example getting everyone aware of the challenges that are faced with identifying electronic music and what more can be done that's really important because it's pressure that will change things it's getting the PROs to consider what they're doing internally and start to review it so that they can improve their internal operations. We'll be
what do you think is the the level of uptake among clubs and electronic music festivals um could you sort of make a an estimate about what proportion of that of that industry has has adopted this technology in one form or another um i would say a fraction um i would say that there is movement which is great there's press attention great uh pros are talking to each other about and they're noticing what others are doing but i would still say it's a fraction for all the electronic music that is played around the world uh, there's still a long way to go what causes the uptake to be slow are there disincentives to adopt this technology is it simply that clubs or um, or performing rights organizations haven't heard of it there's definitely that's going to be one element of it and when afm really formed as a body like five years ago and was like started to lobby all the pros and talk to venues there was the this initial kind of fear from the venues of and also protecting the djs um, of where does my audio end up because you're gonna wait a sec you're gonna come into my club you're gonna record the audio i don't know who you are I don't, i've never heard of your company before and understandably like bmat is well known among the pros literally around the world but unless you're in that world you're not supposed to know who we are like completely understandable and yeah we're telling you we're going to record the audio etc so there would be various things we would say to them, like, look, the, the quality of the audio that we're recording is actually so low, we don't need it to be high to identify the music. We couldn't do anything with this audio. You're not going to find it on YouTube. Plus, we're a trusted provider. We are working with the majors, all of these thousands of labels. So there'll be things we'd be saying to them, like in this way, plus the sound recordings, all of them are actually deleted after a certain period of time, depending on how long the PROs need to go back and refer to them, like depending on if their members make claims and things like this. And then we kind of got past that and then we started to build up networks of venues we have um uh, we're reporting from 110 in spain and then we have great spokesmen as well like as from bmat experience like the the general director of razzmatazz he's actually uh, taken part in an interview that appears on our blog and it's his point of view is amazing and it's however all the venues should feel which is if i'm paying a license i want to know who that's paid out to like that change in mentality from fear of what you're going to do with the audio and who are you to, yeah, I pay a license, I totally get this. I have experience, like, if you're speaking to someone who's innovative, gets technology and enjoys it, and also has that musical connection, uh, which they should if they play music in, the, in their venue, then you automatically, you can start to, like, bond with them in a new way. And what I would love is that everyone shares the same point of view with this uh, Razzmatav general director, which I think is happening more and more. And it is because in the last four months, we've had venue associations, uh, we've had chart companies, uh, we've had uh, producers contacting us direct and asking for installations. That's amazing. So to already have people contact us and say, we want this, and we've actually set up a venues referral scheme. So if people actually um, want to refer to us a venue, we'll actually pay them 100 euros. And if they actually want to install the device, we'll actually pay them another 100 euros as well. So you feel like perhaps there's kind of a, a sea change happening where people are hearing about this thing before it's actually pitched to them. And they're maybe more aware of why it might be a good idea and they're kind of seeking it out. Yeah, they're rather than being in the dark about it and rather than having the normal complaints about the PROs, which still exist and I completely understand, I think that people are, I think they get it more and they, they are aware of the solutions that are out there. And so now they're taking control and taking responsibility and trying to push things, which I think is brilliant. Liz's enthusiasm gives me hope that a revolution in royalty distribution might be around the corner. But it's not here quite yet. 
And in the meantime, producers need a more immediate source of income. Many of them turn to DJing. This is by far the most common way for an underground producer to turn their music into a living. Even if, in terms of skill set, making music and playing it in clubs don't necessarily have much in common. Here's New York's Gunnar Haslam on how the two fit together. As a producer, if, if you're not going out and playing shows in either the capacity as a DJ or a live artist, then all you really have are your productions. Um, that's gotten quite difficult due to the fact that far fewer people are buying records these days, certainly since the 90s. But that's what it's been uh, for my whole time, at least, uh, being a producer. So that doesn't seem to have changed too much. Things have always been quite difficult for a producer if you aren't playing live. The model in the music industry has generally always been that you make a record to promote a tour that the real money that you get as an artist comes from the tour um, and the record is done to basically get people out to come see you and buy tickets. So to the extent that you as a producer can play live, that's really great. And that helps. Um, you can then play live shows and, and that's great. A lot of producers um, will go out and DJ as a way to, to get some money. And for the most part, a lot of producers are fairly competent DJs, you know, not you know, I include myself in that. I think I'm a fine DJ. I'm not blowing anyone's socks off, but, you know, I'm good enough at it and, you know, it's fine. There are other much more highly competent DJs. Um, some of them are able to make DJing their primary thing and, and not really produce any music. Other DJs who are really great DJs, but maybe not great producers, will kind of put together a record with a friend or a you know producer friend of theirs and you know just as a kind of have their name on a record and something and, and that's fine that's been going on forever i don't know how clear the boundary is between if you're a producer or a dj like internally or something you know I, it's it's a very different skill set for sure um you know they're they're two quite distinct disciplines um the one djing um does allow you to actually get paid by bookings. The other, being a producer, doesn't. There seems to be a feeling among people that producers are a bit more like introverted. You know, the, the story of like the producer kind of staying in and being a kind of hermit, as opposed to the DJ who's maybe more of an extrovert, someone who's out partying all night and, you know, able to really interact with the crowd. I don't know how much this plays into it, um, but certainly, I mean, there are a lot of producers that'll go out and DJ and it's not really a good fit. Do you think there's something wrong when the main source of income from this music is the DJing, but the people who have that skill and who can really refine the DJing to a fine art are often, and it seems increasingly, not the same people as those who are pushing the producing side most successfully? I remember when I was a kid watching, you know, 24 hour party people and, you know, you'd see like a scene where people go to the Hacienda or whatever and they're all like, this DJ is playing other people's music, you know, and that's the problem, man. Like, why is he getting paid? You know, we all understand that DJing is its own valuable skill and uh, should be compensated uh, appropriately. But there is certainly uh, something that is a bit unbalanced. It's harder as a producer to make any money on your productions alone. Whereas as a DJ, you can very competently 
if you have some cloud or whatever, um, you can definitely assemble a, a relatively decent, I don't know if it's a full-time income, but maybe a part-time income by DJing. You can't do that if you're just producing. Do you think the, the awareness of this has increased because the earning discrepancy is also increasing? I've spoken to people who invoke the idea of the 1% and the 99% when talking about DJs, and they're not referring to anyone who, who makes some money from DJing, but specifically from the very top kind of uh, echelon of DJ and the huge discrepancy between what they might be earning for one gig and what everyone else in the pond is, is getting. So do you think that, as in the wider world, that inequality is perhaps widening and that, that might be a problem that we need to confront? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the amount of times that I basically get asked to play gigs for exposure, essentially, where it's just an even average club night and I will be sharing the bill with someone who I know is making someone who doesn't get out of bed for less than 3,000 euros or something for a gig and I'm getting paid 300 and basically being told that, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's a big club. This is good for you. That happens all the time. Um, everyone I know has dealt with this. I don't think it's necessarily a big DJ's fault. Um, I don't think the blame lies squarely with their agent. I don't think the blame lies squarely with uh, promoters who are willing to pay it. I don't think the blame lies squarely with the uh, audience that shows up far more for a big name DJ than for smaller ones. Um, but I think all of those things together do create um, an environment in which, yeah, generally at any any real event, there is a huge discrepancy between what a big name international DJ is paid and what a local support DJ is paid. Do you think that the increasing mediation of dance music culture through social media might exacerbate these problems? You hear stories of promoters basing their bookings on how many Instagram followers a DJ has or something. Sure. And perhaps that helps a few people at the top of the food chain to kind of maintain that position and strengthen it and makes it harder for other people to kind of climb the chain. Absolutely, social media plays a huge role in this. Um, it's not something I particularly care about fighting against because at this point, I think techno largely has become mainstream EDM culture. Um, so it's not something that I find any desire to be a part of. Um, it's not like I want to be playing festivals that are like booking people based on Instagram likes because those festivals are by and large trashy pop techno festivals. Um, so I think there's been a real influx of money and corporate sponsorship and things into the techno scene. This is not underground music anymore. Um, we've, we've very clearly left that behind. So if you want to be a part of that more mainstream scene, then it might be an issue for you. Um, if you don't, then uh, you're kind of stuck getting small, more underground gigs and those aren't going to pay very well. But you knew that getting into it. With sales going down, live fees have gone up. Here's Matt Dryhurst again. Aside from his teaching and consulting, Matt also works and performs regularly with his wife, the musician Holly Herndon. Life fees have also become the important thing, right? Like we make our money from life fees. Yourself and Holly. Holly, exactly. So that's like our main source of income. And we have to go away and make no money for a while to make a record that's hopefully good enough that people want to book so that we can go make money doing that. And then hopefully we make enough money that we can go back and make another record. That's like the new economy. 
the challenges when there is no culture of attribution, the DJ is represented as the same as somebody who has worked to make all of that music, and the act of playing someone else's techno records is considered to be the same as having made those records. And I'm like, that is incorrect. Irrespective of how good a DJ someone might be, that is incorrect. And what that demonstrates is that we've deprioritized attribution or interdependence for such a long time that now to most people, there's no uh, distinction. And as a result, we are in competition with one another. You mean sort of like producers and DJs? Yes. And that's a major problem because first off, if you don't have to make the work or take the time to buy the shit, go to school or whatever it is you need to make something that people want to hear, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is like subscribe to Boomcat and Clone or whatever and then figure out some software, right? There's a cream of people who are way better than that, but let's be real, most people that's what they do. There's nothing wrong with it either, necessarily per se. Your overheads are super low. You haven't got to worry about all of the different things that a producer or an artist or whatever has to worry about. That if not through no decision by anyone we might know, if now we are in competition with each other, that's a big problem because the only way that the producers uh, could depend to make money now is the, with those live fees. And the DJs who don't attribute and don't have the burden of having to make anything themselves are way more competitive in that environment if, if it's all the same to the audience. That is untenable. And I see traces of it in the short term. And I'm like, if, if nothing's done about that in the long term, we're gone. If the just good enough DJing output is enough to convince a public or a booker that, you know, oh yeah, we'll, we'll just go with that. We are probably less than 10 years away from a system being able to select those tracks with no human interference, right? So even the just good enough DJ, I think, should be really concerned about this. There's, there's maybe short-term gains, long-term woes in that particular strategy. So we may be heading towards obsolescence as DJs. If the approach is, we don't care about paying the people we're playing, and we aren't putting in the time to build a certain community or to make like a, a real point of circulating wealth or encouraging the work to be made in a, in a particularly tactile way, then yes, yes, everyone's under threat. This isn't ultimately about like me trying to stigmatize DJs. I'm just saying that like there ought to be a motivation for DJs as well as producers to be uh, motivated to want to consider interdependent strategies moving forward. In pointing out that 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 argument with with DJ specifically, my my intention is more to not call anyone out, but more to be like, hey, our actions are so far from our stated ideology that we should probably look at this because I think ultimately the good people are open to be exploited and. The few bad people, it's only a minority, but the few opportunists out there, it's a field day, you know? And that's not good for anybody. And that's certainly not good for culture or the progression of the medium. Something you've talked about in the past that I feel might be relevant here to this idea of an increasing interest in the metadata around a musician. If I can try to summarize your argument, music is so abundant now and it's becoming so much harder to make value distinctions between musicians because there's so much of it out there. People are more drawn to kind of extra musical information like context, background, 
uh, perhaps a political conviction or whatever. Mm -hmm. And these things often dictate people's interest in an artist as much as or if not more than the music. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think you summarised it really well. One easy devil's advocate argument is that 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 isn't new. What I would say though is it isn't new that the identity of a production is one of its biggest selling points. That is not new at all. What's distinct though is how crucial it has become, I think, because of just the abundance of cheap media, right? So the argument being, and I'll say this in maybe DJ world, whatever, right? Like if there are thousands of people going out and playing Jeff Millsy derivative tracks every weekend, you basically have a kind of interchangeable component there. It's like, does it really matter who the person is performing that? It's only rational that the way you would make your decision over what to support would be these extra musical factors. For example, it might be a matter of identity, it might be a matter of class, it might be a matter of vibe. That's a big one, and that's actually a very important one that's always existed, right? It's like, I would rather listen to Jeff Mills' derivative tracks in an environment in which I feel safe. Super reasonable, very rational. With the work Holly and I've been doing, like, this is kind of like something we chose to embrace quite a long time ago is being like, no, like the world around the record is the record as much as the music is. And that's an opportunity should you use to direct it towards something. The contextual element is this open goal that always exists. It's just always there. You can always play with that. And that's kind of part of making art. So, so it's not a sour grapes attitude. It's more just saying that, yeah, uh, with an abundance of cheap media, those things are of heightened importance. And I always attach that also to the platform economy, like platform capitalism, surveillance capitalism, whatever one you call it. My argument about that is that in order to understand platform capitalism, you have to understand that ostensibly it's a process of, of creating maps. So it's a cartographic process and it's a process of creating trade routes on those maps, right? So the argument being that um, Google created maps of the web and they have the keys to be able to read those maps. And they're not maps like a normal map. They're maps that change with every millisecond. And Google's the only one that knows if you want to sell something on this new map, you pay Google to get your product or your message to whoever you want it to get to. And they know how to navigate that trade route. Same with Facebook. They map relationships, right? And so in that economy, which is the dominant Western kind of like economy at least for the creative industries my argument is that artists who can most successfully expand that map by creating basically new metadata right so it's like i am a dog loving person who's into this particular period of industrial music and this sneaker brand and whatever like think of like five things that five novel combinations of things that then basically create a new market for people to sell people's stuff. Um, because people identify with this particular combination. Exactly, exactly. That then you are complementing, for better or worse, you are complementing the core business model of platform capitalism. And so that's why I think that generally, you know, people can be have sour grapes about this. And I'm like, no, these things can happen in earnest too. We do it. I understand what's happening, and it's not done cynically, but through a novel combination of interests, we're expanding that map. We're more desirable than, for example, I mean, like, classic case in point, like, you'll see a lot of sour grapes being like, oh, you know, people only get this because they're women, or whatever. And you're like, no, but, one, that's bullshit. Number two, 
you're also not having the right conversation. You not you don't understand. Like, if you're a white dude who likes Nike and techno, the map's made. People know that map. It's existed forever. Do you know what I'm saying? Of course, people. Not cynically, but people who are, are creating these new novel combinations, probably because they were they were they were kind of ignored by the conversation before for myriad reasons we don't need to go into. But it's just like, yes, they are expanding the map. That that's why they're valuable. And yes, identity is a part of that, of course. But it need not be perceived as like a cynical, bitter thing. It's just that's the new economy, right? And so, if anything, I'd like for people to understand that that's the economy that we live in. Because um, if you are to want to make some ideological distinction from that, at least get your first principles right. Like, at least know what you're disagreeing with. You're listening to The Hour from RA. If you're enjoying this episode, you can revisit our archive of shows at residentadvisor.net in the podcast section. It's time to talk about a relatively new income stream for electronic musicians. A decade or two ago, brand sponsorship was mostly available to big artists with mainstream clout. These days, drinks and sportswear brands are on the hunt for underground cred. It seems that no niche is too small, which means new opportunities for producers, but also professional and ethical conundrums. The journalist Sherry Hu talked me through this complex new world. The concept of selling out as an artist, it definitely still exists, but it's a lot more complicated and nuanced now, I think, as a lot of artists do understand that just by financial necessity, you very often have to partner with companies who maybe you were reluctant to and could afford to be reluctant to partner with um, because you had all these other income sources as well. Looking at this from the other perspective, why do you think brands are more willing now to throw some money at uh, an artist who's relatively early in their development. Okay, let's just take an example. Um, Heineken sponsors an independent uh, quote-unquote DIY artist showcase in Brooklyn. Taking that as a case study and looking at the motivation behind that. It's like kind of cliche but true. Brands uh, throw out the word authenticity all the time. And I think each brand will have a different definition of what that word means, but that's what they're aiming for. And I think that word is a driving factor for partnering with independent artists because the best case scenario is that you have an artist who has, um, whether DIY or like with a team around them, built up a, a genuine relationship with some audience of fans on their own terms. And so that that is one potential example of being authentic because you don't really have any outside incentives yet. Um, you know, before partnering with the brand, the fans are following the artist not because of any kind of like pouring money into paid views or anything. Um, it's just all it's very organic relationship, and brands are increasingly wanting to tap into that kind of connection. And in that situation, it's not a matter of scale; it's just a matter of reaching the right people um, who are extremely passionate and who will then spread the word to their own super small network of friends or fans who will then spread the word to their network and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's about like the quality of connection rather than the quantity. In this case, I think a lot of brand partnerships with independent artists are just a subset of 
influencer marketing partnerships in general. So in these situations, brands are treating these artists as influencers. Um, people might throw around the term micro-influencers, which I think is just an amusing term, but it's like people who have, um, who wield a lot of valuable influence over what just happens to be a really small group of people, but it doesn't mean it's any less effective than aiming for someone who has like maybe several million followers on Instagram already. I mean, I guess what you're saying is that um, the way that brands attempt to sell things, their understanding of how that works has shifted from a sense of sort of the more the merrier broadcasting to a massive potential group of buyers to kind of narrow casting. You know, we want to try and target these exact people but get them in a really effective way where they're going to form a really meaningful relationship with our brand through this, whoever this representative is, this musician. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I really like that term, narrow casting. And I think that's definitely like a logical thing for um, a brand to do in an era where mass media channels like TV, um, like radio are decreasing in influence. And again, this actually does vary across markets. So going back to like China and India, um, TV and radio in those markets are actually uh, super important. And it's still kind of a marker of prestige and of success for any independent or major artist um, in those countries. But just in general, the way that people consume media, let alone music, is increasingly fragmented. Um, there, it's, it's happening on these platforms that are increasingly, you know, personalizing the experience to the end user. And so there's just no concept of um, mass media on Instagram. Like, I really don't think that exists. And so as a brand, how, how do you navigate that? The way to do that is to try to reach as many of these uh, small but super powerful fragments of the media ecosystem as you can. You hear some people say, sort of complain that brands are particularly interested in working with musicians who are, for example, women or people of colour. Um, why might this be? Mm. What are brands getting out of this relationship versus working with, say, a, a white male musician? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think the key buzzwords um, that are important to these brands, obviously diversity is one of them. This is actually something that the music industry itself is also dealing with. I think as an artist, if you don't take some kind of political stance, people actually have lower trust in you as an artist. Or people either have lower trust in you or they have like lower loyalty to you because they're not actually sure what you're about. In not taking a political stance, you're um, essentially encouraging potential fans or customers to go to another artist or another brand that does align more with their political views. That, that that's, that's kind of how I see it, that the landscape has totally changed. Like even five years ago, that wouldn't have necessarily been the case, I think. Um, because obviously there's so many instances of the opposite of a brand taking also like a negative political stance and then losing a ton of their customers. There's so many examples of that. So I think people are looking for some kind of affirmation now that an artist or brand is kind of on their side or on what they see to be the right side of things. And so, and so you think that a brand kind of explicitly setting out to work with someone who represents a particular identity group is then trying to say, you know, we are politically on the right side of the line, you know, don't worry about us, we, we have like good, good morals or whatever, essentially. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this topic also warrants like several other podcast episodes, uh, pieces of media, whatever. But 
there have actually been a, a lot of academic scholars in this realm or also just like casual observers claiming that um, it is people of color who drive so much of what is seen as cutting edge culture um, before it ends up reaching the mainstream as well. So many examples of music, so many genres were spearheaded by people of color. The whole rise of Lil Nas X as well came up alongside something called the Yeehaw Agenda, which is people of color reclaiming the cowboy aesthetic, which has this reputation for being super white, but actually there's a lot of evidence that uh, like the first cowboys were African-American or Latino as well. So there's just all these different trends in parallel coming together. And I think they do contribute to, in the specific context of music, brands wanting to partner with more people of color as well, because there is this like kind of reckoning and recognition that they truly are on the cutting edge of culture. And so if you're not highlighting them, but still claiming as a brand that you're you're innovative or you're like, you know, on the forefront of, of the next trend, uh, are, are you really, if there aren't any people of color on your roster? I feel like certainly in the sort of bubble of, of electronic dance music, there's a sort of a complex relationship in the way that people respond to these, these brand partnerships. There's a kind of complex relationship between a sort of resistance to brand presence in, in culture, um, which is understandable, but then also a kind of resentment about minority groups being becoming more visible or something like that. Um, I wanted to take the, the example of um, the DJ Peggy Goo, um, who has done quite a lot of, of brand work, I think, over the last few years. Um, she did a partnership with RA and Nike um, in London. Um, she did a partnership with SoundCloud. And there was a campaign for Porsche as well. Um, and she's often got a lot of, of blowback from sort of below the line commenters or, or, or fans of the music or observers for doing these things. And do you think there is a sort of legit criticism of musicians doing too much work with brands? Or do you think this kind of criticism is mainly coming from a place of sexist resentment? Uh, or is it some combination of the two? Hmm, it's a super interesting question. There are musicians in this world who don't have a front-facing brand. Probably people wouldn't recognize them on the street and they make uh, like a good amount of money, like six figures from just writing music for commercials. So like their, their main clients are ad agencies. Ad agencies, I guess, are, are their fans and, and they're writing specifically for that context. Uh, and that's totally fine. And they're making an amazing living as musicians. I, I mentioned that because that's, I think, one extreme of this conversation, right? Like an artist completely relying on what are essentially brand partnerships or brand work versus an artist who doesn't rely on it at all. It really all depends on like where the artist is coming from and, and what their goals are. I personally totally understand criticism of artists partnering with brands if uh, if the artist is trying to build a public following but doesn't have an identity um, separate from the brand. So actually to bring this back to influencer marketing, um, a lot of the biggest influencers have a danger of essentially just becoming commercial actors uh, in that they're that most of their posts are just like shilling branded products to people. Uh, and in that case, it's like, what, what, like, what is really your identity as an influencer? Like, are you just like a human being who happens to have a lot of followers? And so now, it, like, you know, it's being used by brands to help push product. Um, that obviously like totally rubs people the wrong way. Um, but if 
So I think in the case of Peggy, I don't think that criticism is necessarily justified because I think she does have um, a super strong identity and a super strong like fanatic following independent of these brands coming in. Obviously very prolific in the fashion world in addition to the music world. Like she's, She launched her own fashion label this year and is traveling the world promoting that. So to your second point about sexism as well, it's like a mix of sexism and racism pointing to the question of like who, you know, who deserves to have these kinds of partnerships. I mean, I personally think Peggy Goo is like super deserving of these partnerships in part because, as I said before, she has, I think, a really strong and coherent and robust brand just like on her own before, I think, before partnering with with anybody else. She's comes from a really unique place and has a really unique perspective that very few other people can bring to the table. Um, and that in, in this conversation about, you know, why brands are partnering with artists, um, they're looking for uh, diversity for people with like, you know, interesting things to say, um, who are coming from kind of an unconventional place of genuine relationships, you know, with their audience. I think like Peggy definitely checks off like all of those boxes in a way that's distinct to her. Probably like Peggy is making, you know, a good amount of money now and is able to fund tours where fans are showing up and not just drinking the alcohol that sponsored <laughs> that sponsored the show or like buying whatever fashion brand sponsored her show like they're showing up for her and so i think that invalidates a lot of the criticism that's been going on do you see brand partnerships becoming an ever bigger part of of musicians incomes i ask this because a couple of people i've spoken to have said that with the end of red bull music academy this year uh, and, and a couple of other things that maybe a sort of golden era of brand sponsorship of underground music is coming to an end actually and that brands are losing interest slightly. Do you think that's the case or is it still a growing market? I think it's still a growing market, but I think the closure of Red Bull Music Academy, people are like rightly kind of concerned about the future because uh, that specific initiative is one example of the power of a brand partnering with an artist in a way that isn't just one-off. That initiative lasted several years. Um, very few brands are willing to make that kind of investment in something like the growing class of emerging artists. Like usually an artist-brand partnership is just kind of, you know, like a one-off thing, um, an artist endorsing a specific product, and then, okay, on, on to the next thing. That said, so at the same time that Red Bull Music Academy is going to close, you have a lot of brands launching their own record labels. So W Hotels has a singles label. They might be one of the brands to actually invest in independent or emerging artists over the course of several years. So they are really ramping up their music initiatives. They have um, a network of recording studios across a lot of their hotels. They have their own music festival as well. Uh, and then I saw that United Airlines also released some records on Spotify, which I found to be super interesting. And that, unlike with W Hotels, the records that United Airlines released were um, interpretations of their theme song, which is just uh, uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. But it was like taking a bunch of these artists from actually a super diverse background to try to reinterpret the theme in their own style. But it was like very clearly tied to the, the United Airlines brand. I think as the global music industry continues to grow in terms of recorded music revenue, like as streaming continues to grow, brands are 
investing directly in the recording process, which actually is like as direct of a partnership as you can get with an artist, right? Like being involved in the actual recording process as opposed to, you know, partnering with the artist's image after a record has has been coming out. And I mean, I can only imagine there being uh, more backlash and more stigma around that, like the um, the brand kind of in terms of like a brand actually funding a record. But um, that that is already happening. And, and I think that will only continue to grow even more than just like one off activations will continue to grow. I asked the producer Telephone Tel Aviv how he felt about working with brands. Whether or not that's a good or a bad thing is just a, it's just sort of a purity test for, for where you fall ideologically on you know, the viability of accepting corporate money. I think that, for instance, RBMA has done a lot for music. Now, of course, Red Bull wants wants to spend all this money uh, so that they don't have to pay it back in taxes, and, and I get that. And so it gets invested into this music scenes, different music scenes around the world. And, you know, ultimately, I'm sure it's a way for them to just have pallets of their drink being sold at the events. Okay, <laughs> that's a little bit shady. It just feels excessively capitalistic. But, you know, if they can't get a return on their investment, I mean, then... We're living in some kind of socialist hellscape, aren't we, right? Now, uh, and in the years to come, is really gonna be, is really gonna put everybody's purity to the test. For instance, all the uproar over over the Nike and Peggy Goo thing, there was an RA event, as I understand it. There was so much, so many opinions about that. And, uh, and everybody's falling in kind of different places on the ideological spectrum and and I don't really know where I fall on that. I really don't know how I feel on it. Because if it's a difference of having a Nike logo in the bottom right corner of a video and it allows all the artists on the bill to get paid, I don't, really, I don't know that that can be justified as something that's bad. At the same time, guys like me, we've always turned our nose away at corporate stuff. It's always kind of felt, I've turned down commercials, you know, I've said no to licenses for, you know, huge companies that wanted to use my music in a commercial because I fought, I felt that the company was a shit company and did awful stuff and I didn't want my music associated with it. So I, I have a level of purity, but I just don't, I don't, I don't know what kind of money you dangle in front of my face is going to make my purity just instantly evaporate. I've, I've never been really tested. I guess another potential issue that's cropped up just recently is what happens when that money suddenly disappears. So obviously there was quite a lot of shock about the announcement that RBMA would end in its current form this year. And there's obviously a sense that they've established a whole kind of network and really integrated themselves into the music ecosystem. And nobody knows really what will happen when they go. Does that also give you pause? Does that concern you that you know there's a certain unpredictability to this oh absolutely because we know with with beyond a shadow of a doubt that rbma's investment in the music industry was not fucking ideological it was capitalistic and when it starts to have diminishing returns and they find that there's better better ways for them to to uh sort of lessen their tax outlay then they'll just abandon it immediately and this is the way corporations are set up in the western world um 
it's a huge problem. And this is also why I think, you know, yeah, maybe we need to be accepting corporate money when we can, but also relying on it, I think is sort of <clears throat> setting yourself up for a major failure because it can be abandoned instantly and without warning, as we've seen. If I were starting out right now, I have no idea how I would get into this. It's horrifying. Matt Dryhurst, when I spoke to him, talked about this idea of replacing um, the model that we have of independence as being a kind of ideal to aspire to in music with a model of interdependence. So solidarity between people, between musicians, people in the music scene, kind of collective forms of organization that that might help kind of improve the situation for everyone financially. Um, does that kind of idea appeal to you? And what kind of forms do you think that might take among musicians? Oh, I mean, I think that's probably one of the best ideas I've heard in a long time. And, and I, my jaw was kind of on the floor when I read that. Um, I think it's a terrific idea because it also reflects the way a lot of us feel uh, society and government in general should go, that things need to be sort of collectivized and we sort of need to retain control over these things. Individualism anyway, pretty much we know what, what the idea of romanticizing individualism leads to. I mean, American politics in the 80s, for instance, was all about the individual and individual responsibility and, and look where it fucking led us, man. Look where we are now. The United States is an absolute trash pile now because of everything's so individualized and everybody's been poisoned against the idea of working collectively or even owning collectively. I think the pushback that Matt would have in, in, amongst other musicians is the American dream lottery farce. It's why capitalism does so well in America and why socialism is just such a buzzword for terror amongst so many people here because they would rather gamble on the hypothetical idea that they could someday be a millionaire and they would rather live in squalor in the meantime. If you ask a lot of musicians, say, hey, we can make every musician able to play shows in 600 cap rooms and make four grand a night. Every musician would do it, you know? How do you feel about that? Um, most musicians would say, oh, well, no, I'd rather stick to 100 cap rooms and make $500 a night in the hopes that I'm one day going to be able to play 5K cap rooms and make 20 grand a night. It's the farce of the American dream. It's this lie that's told to all of us in America and largely in the West as well, of you can be anything you wanna be and you can, you can succeed. Look at Howard Schultz, he did it, he's a billionaire now. Yeah, well he got fucking lucky. Not everybody is lucky. Everybody has a talent or, or something they do that makes the world better. Everybody has a place, I do believe that, but I don't believe that everybody is going to be rewarded for their, for their work or their, or their vision or, or their ideas because of the way society is set up. And naturally the music industry is a fucking chef's kiss, just perfect example of that. Oh, you're gonna get big, you're gonna get on Pitchfork Fest and Pitchfork's gonna give you a best new music. You're headed for the fucking stars, good luck. There's so much gatekeeping in front of you about that. It almost doesn't matter how good your fucking record is. You could have a masterpiece on your, you could have Low by David Bowie. And if, if it doesn't somehow wend its way through this stagnant mirror of this fucking snake pit of the music industry of involving everybody involved in it and we're all complicit, if it doesn't sort of wind its way through exactly the correct channels, you're fucked. No one will hear it and no one will care and you will still be fucking pouring coffee. Thank you.
So what's it like to have a brand play a key role in your musical development? I spoke to the German producer and DJ Patrice Boimel, who attended the Red Bull Music Academy and has defended RBMA's work in the past. My main experience with brand sponsorship was with uh, the Red Bull Music Academy. And I think that is probably one of the poster children of how to do brand sponsoring in music right. They provided a playground, a nurturing ground for, for up and coming musicians to learn, uh, grow, to connect with each other, but didn't force itself onto the content too much. So basically they, they, they fostered a ton of talent throughout the years. Um, the brand simply remained in the background. Uh, it, it, it was mentioned, but there was never any moment where, okay, can you take a can of uh, Red Bull and drink it in front of the camera or anything? There was no obvious product placement. And I think the benefits of that cooperation between the, the, the music scene and Red Bull far, far outweigh the commercial, uh, the commercial aspect that often has a bit of a negative tone to it. In 2002, I uh, applied to the Rappel Music Academy just to be part of the uh, program. And I got accepted to the Academy in uh, uh, Sao Paulo. So they shipped me out for two weeks to Brazil. I got to take a lot of lectures. I got to meet like-minded people. And I took my first steps uh, um, producing. Up until that point, I never even touched uh, any sort of DAW. Um, and. Um, one of the guys uh, who was helping out there, um, his name is C-Rock, who's a DJ from uh, Germany. Uh, he gave me uh, like a first run through to uh, through Rebirth, just an hour one-on-one -on -one coaching. And for me, that was the starting point of my producing career. Basically, at that moment, I was thinking, oh, maybe I can do that. Maybe that's something also for me. Uh, so that program simply just gave me the belief that I could be more than just a hobby DJ. That was the starting point for me to say, okay, I no longer want to be a computer programmer. I actually want to slowly veer my career into music and actually make, make a bit of work of it. Without the Academy, that would have never happened. I would still probably be just a hobby DJ or not at all. I would just be working in a nine to five job somewhere. Do you think that, or have you encountered kind of counter examples so so brand money where which sort of isn't done in the right way um, and you know maybe there is too much of the commercial side or that's there's some kind of uncomfortable conditions around it I think I encountered that a lot um, most notably uh, heavy sponsoring at festivals where where the actual musical experiences is completely dominated by uh, advertising everywhere um, being constantly exposed to advertising, I think it's a sort of environmental pollution that kind of weighs heavy on the subconscious well-being of people. What do you say to people who um, feel uncomfortable about any kind of brand involvement in underground culture, who would say that any brand name being anywhere near it is, is kind of de facto bad? Um, well, you have to see uh, what would the scene look like without any branding whatsoever. Uh, of course, a lot of festivals, a lot of projects would not even take place. And especially when you go into the more art space of things, uh, producing videos, anything that is experimental and expensive, that requires some sort of sponsorship, whether it's uh, financed by the state or local government or uh, 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 brands. You need that sort of sponsorship to uh, 
bring music that is not commercially viable into the public eye. If there is money that sponsors good art, uh, you should embrace it as long as it's not uh, using the art as a vehicle to sell stuff, but simply being there as uh, a sugar daddy is a wrong word, but just as a as someone in the background uh, helping out. Do you think that um, musicians and kind of underground music culture will become more and more dependent on uh, brand support for these kinds of big expensive projects that you mentioned? Um, I think it, it, it really depends. I think uh, uh, our scene is actually pretty non-dependent on uh, on uh, on sponsorship simply because uh, there's already so much public demand for it so um, there's so many parties and even also there's so many examples of festivals that can do without sponsorship uh, and, and our music is extremely popular and it, I wouldn't even call it underground anymore there isn't there isn't an underground scene anymore because this music is mainstream in Berlin techno is mainstream it's the biggest music out there you know so uh, I, I, that whole division of being in the underground, I, it doesn't apply for me and hasn't applied for me in, in years. Patrice isn't alone in his pragmatic take on brand influence in electronic music culture. When putting together this podcast, I struggled to find a musician who was strictly against brand sponsorship, though many, myself included, feel uncomfortable with it on some level. Perhaps this reflects, as Patrice says, the declining capital of the term underground. We can't really claim that our scenes are self-sufficient when they're dependent on giant platforms like Facebook, Instagram and Spotify for the oxygen of communication and distribution. So perhaps most musicians have accepted that compromise is unavoidable, or maybe they simply can't afford to be choosy. Here's Matt Dryhurst. Do you think that money from brands can plug the gap left by declining income from other sources for musicians? Yes. And I get a lot of crap for it. But over the years, I've had a lot of people come to me with this exact question because it's kind of it's been like a zeitgeist or like a vogue question to ask for a long time. My line of thinking was, what is a bigger problem? The rise of algorithmic populism and radical, violent barbarian restructuring of culture or a few select organizations who I think are pretty earnest in their intentions to pay artists to do whatever they want with as few conditions imposed on them creatively as possible. What's a bigger problem? I think the first is a significantly bigger problem. I do think it's sad that we might find ourselves in a situation that you need the artificial inflation or an artificial injection of cash from a sock company for us to run this culture. I do think that that is a, an embarrassment. That's why I think you could have other models, but I don't think it's the sock company's fault that we're in that situation. I don't see the correlation. It's very frustrating to hear. It's a very easy argument because most people will agree with it unthinkingly oh get these brands out whatever and i'm like i don't think that that logic meets the levity of the situation we find ourselves in i don't think it it's productive actually 
I would put double the time I put into thinking about other stuff into a proposal from somebody that would exist in parallel, be a counter-argument to brand patronage, I would volunteer time and do regularly for people who actually have proposals. But those who choose not to read about how things work and who choose to just throw stones, it's it's an untenable logic. It's, it's, it's useless. It's literally useless. So you think this sort of basic squeamishness that a lot of musicians have where they maybe can't articulate super clearly their reservations about brands, but they have this strong feeling of no, that's not a helpful uh, feeling to have, really. No, I mean, that, that's super legitimate. I also feel that squeamish, and I think it's also difficult because it's a case-by-case thing. One of the kind of perversities of the discourse, I think, at the moment, and just generally, is the older, kind of inherited radical position of freedom of information for everybody, and which the streaming companies and basically Web2 was built on, is still considered to be a tenable position, a tenable political position. And then you have brands or institutions, a minority of brands and institutions who have hired well, who basically bend over backwards to try and keep certain scenes running, who are considered the enemy in contrast to this other system. That to me is just a, it's a, it's a mistake. It's just, um, it's either dishonest or completely ignorant. It's just not correct. And so there are many people who have serious objections to any corporate money being involved in their projects and more power to them because generally the people who have the strongest arguments about this have thought it through and I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize them it's just that kind of off the cuff dismissal of things that drives me crazy because those are the ones that end up being quite dangerous because there's not really an argument there it just travels really far and then it's easy for people to pick up and then pile on things and I'm like this is just kind of crap it's just like it doesn't it's not true things don't work like that i wonder as well if there is certain things that brands fund that these days otherwise couldn't be funded that um, kind of fly under the radar. So something I've seen you mention elsewhere is uh, is visa applications, the way that um, I guess it was RBMA will invest time and money in getting that first visa for an artist for Europe or the US, yep. which sort of helps launch their career. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if, yeah, maybe there are these things that brands are doing that people don't I mean, I'll say now, so I'm working on the record with Holly, we're going to perform at RBMA in New York, Um, we will have eight people on stage, and there is literally no way we could perform that record without their participation, particularly on the visa side. I know of artists from Jamaica, from Egypt, from Russia, from all over the world who've been given a chance at a career because of that. Now look, I can hear arguments about RBMA. I'm actually a bit more nuanced about this than like most. There's such a load of conversations about the potential implications of brand long-term brand involvement in in community stuff and that's a, there's there's good conversations to be had there. I'm not trying to be a shill. But when the conversation deviates from those kind of tangible material uh, questions, then I do feel like I have to say something because it's just dishonest. It's not true. There's so much work that you don't see being done that facilitates the ability for artists who would not be able to develop their art or do the kind of inconvenient, uh, economically illogical things that artists tend to do, um, those those things are often facilitated by entities that are then branded as somehow bad for the culture, and I, I disagree with that. I tried to say this in, in that protocol story, was basically, you know, like, what was the great ideological position of of the original indies and how does the current economy of brands differ from that? Now, I have a personal political position that complicates that. 
and stuff. Um, but when I see people who basically agree with each other on fundamental protocol ideological issues at each other's throats over nothing, it frustrates me and like it's just a waste of time. That's my position on that. And the visa thing, I think, is one <clears throat> one thing to raise because, you know, generally speaking, the criticisms never go to that level of detail. And I think that level of detail is pretty damn significant and important. It's complicated. It's just really, it's complicated, so let's not have an uncomplicated conversation about it. Thanks for listening to this special episode of The Hour on the changing economics of electronic music. Across two instalments, we've looked at the financial reality for producers in 2019 and found a cause for concern, but also some optimism. For every musician who said things are getting more difficult, I encountered somebody else with a striking idea about how the situation could be improved. New technology and a new willingness among music communities to talk about these issues mean we're better placed than ever to make lasting improvements to the way money is distributed in the scene. We're living through a period of upheaval and uncertainty, but maybe there's hope still for the jobbing electronic music producers out there. Thanks for listening to the second part of our two-part episode of The Hour on the changing economics of dance music. We'll be back next month with more interviews, documentary and discussion.